As I was thinking about what topic I wanted to talk about tonight, it was definitely in my mind that um, this is the 54th anniversary of my birth today. So I thought, well, what topic would I want to speak about? And two topics immediately came to mind, gratitude and death. (laughs) So sorry if you were hoping for gratitude. (laughs) This feels loud. I've actually had, uh, for as long as I can remember, an interest in the topic of death and also a certain comfort with reflecting on death. I have a theory as to why that might be. When I was very young, uh, just two years old, I was very, very sick and actually came pretty close to dying. And I don't remember any specifics about that, although I have some fragments of memories from that time. But my theory is maybe, you know, I got close enough to have that sense that it was okay. Because as long as I can remember, I have had that sense that it's okay. In fact, as a, a kid, when I was little, I used to tell my little friends, don't worry, if I die, Tell them it's okay. And I don't know where it came from. There's such a big not knowing with death. It's such a huge unknown. It's part of what I like about the topic, actually. Of course, we all know that we will die, but what that means can't be known. And I know for some people that's a cause of, uh, cause for some uneasiness, some discomfort. But for others, I know for myself that not being able to know has the capacity to kind of blast through (laughs) the mind's ideas because we can't know. It's an unknown, an unknowable. So for me, it kind of opens the mind. There can be a kind of spaciousness in the mind in that not knowing. And I know also for as long as I can remember, I've found comfort in contemplating infinity. (laughs) It's that same kind of thing, that not knowing. Just the, the connection with the night sky and the stars and that infinite space. It does something uh, expansive (laughs) for my mind. Just a couple of weekends ago, um, my husband and I went to a memorial 
service for a friend. And this was someone who had been ill for some time, so it was not an unexpected death. But as we were driving to the memorial, I said to my husband, you know, we're going to be doing more and more of this as the years go on. And it was just a kind of striking moment. He had actually been thinking the same thing. And then, of course, we both had the same next thought, which was, yeah, including, you know, one of us being there for the others, potentially. Earlier this year, an old friend of mine, someone I'd known for some years, and someone who was very close to my age, just a few weeks difference, uh, died quite suddenly. And it was so interesting to notice how his death affected me. Of course, there was what you might expect, you know, the sadness or the, just the sense of gravity when someone is no longer on this world, on this planet with us. But there was also a way in which having someone that I knew so well suddenly be gone brought the contemplation about death, the reality, really, of death, in much more closely for me. And it had a very striking and powerful effect. For some time, and I can say that it was surprisingly short, just a week or two, it was as though uh, just that awareness of death cut through the trivial aspects of mind. Maybe not even trivial, but like the, the unskillful tendencies or habits, you know, of self-doubt or confusion or just this sort of whatever my particular sort of neurotic tendencies can be. You know, the sort of messiness of mind. It just cut through it. It was like it provided this powerful perspective about what was important. And certainly those trivial aspects, (laughs) trivial ways the mind can entertain itself or just slide around in old habits. They weren't important. And it was like they just dissolved for a while in light of that reflection, that intimacy with death. And then it passed. So interesting. It can be such a powerful reminder about what's important and really something we should know all the time. And yet we don't until it's brought home quite closely. So why talk about death? 
you know, in the framework of meditation practice. I would guess, I, would th- I think that it's a very safe guess that those of us who are drawn to contemplative practices, such as meditation, have a very keen interest in seeing how things actually are, in understanding truth, in understanding reality. And death is a part of that reality. It was interesting to be reflecting on this today, on my birthday. Particularly this afternoon, I was at home and I was just kind of sitting with my notes and some readings. And and I wasn't taking phone calls because I knew that I had to save my talking for tonight. And the phone kept ringing for a while. (laughs) You know, old friends and friends from around here, but some friends that, you know, only call once a year or family on a birthday. So I'd be, you know, sitting there thinking about death and the phone would ring and the answer machine would go off and this cheery voice would (laughs) come on wishing me well and hoping I was having a happy day and singing and (laughs) celebrating birth. And it was just kind of a sweet juxtaposition. It fit somehow quite nicely. This afternoon when I left here after lunch, I went to visit my mother, who now lives uh, very near to where I live. And this is new. She used to be in New Jersey. And she's in a nursing home uh, as of earlier this year when she fell and broke her hip and could no longer live at home. So I just, a couple of months ago, moved her to a place, a really nice place near my house. So I went over there today. It felt important to me to visit her on my birthday. Someone had given me a little bit of chocolate here after lunch, so I took half of it over to her and gave it to her. And as we were sitting there, you know, and I had reminded her, I said, do you know what day it is? <laughs> she didn't, but she, she was happy to be reminded. And then we were sitting there, and she said, just, you know, in passing, she said, I remember the day you were born. And I said, yeah, I, I bet you do. <laughs> and then I just said, yeah, and like, you know, a blip. And now I'm 54. She said, yeah, another blip, and I'm going to be gone, and you're going to be the old lady. (laughs) And I said, yeah, it's true. It's like that. It was so interesting. Then I got in my car to go back home, and I got behind a school bus. And it was a school bus that was uh, from a grammar school, so it was filled with small children. They looked so small (laughs) and so young after hanging out at the nursing home with pretty much everyone in a wheelchair. And it was so interesting because the bus would stop, you know, at each house where they were dropping off, 
and these little sprouts would just fly off the bus. I, I counted only one family of brother and sister walked. Every other dropping off of child ran from the bus to their house, not out of fear or discomfort, just out of pure, youthful, exuberant, life-filled energy. It was so sweet and so lovely, and again, a nice juxtaposition to being in the nursing home. We have uh, an interesting relationship culturally here in this country with death, for the most part. I know there are probably exceptions, and I'm thinking more and more exceptions to this. But it's so often the habit to not think about it, to keep it out of sight. So we're not trained in reflecting on death, in meeting it. So it can become, on a personal level, kind of scary or, you know, just even not even facing our own, but being around death. It's messy. It's unpleasant. And it can be fearful if we're not practiced, if it's not included as a part of our life experience. Personally, I feel that we've, we've been robbed of the experience. And really, it's one of life's biggest, most compelling events, rather like birth. And because it's kept so separate from us, we're kept so separate from it, we're robbed of that intimacy. If you've had the experience of being with someone through an illness, being with them at the time of death, it's such a gift. I know in my experience of sharing that with a good friend, it was so interesting to see his perspective shift as death drew nearer, to see how he got really clear about what was most important in life. And really, it was so simple, so basic. Having an open heart to love, to be loved, to be present with his experience, and of course, to let go. Knowing that death is coming, he had the opportunity to let go and let go and let go on different levels. 
until that final letting go. And it was beautiful to watch, to be with. Hopefully it's changing, but not often in the past years, you know, has this been uh, so available to us as a culture. You know, we're not only not trained and kept separate from the actual experience of death, in our culture even aging is a taboo, which is so absurd. It's so interesting to live in a culture that devalues elders and aging, that we're somehow failing as we age. It's interesting to have been here in Barrie uh, and involved with IMS next door for quite a number of years now, I can say that. (laughs) When I first came there and was first on staff next door at the retreat center, I was one of the young ones. Now I'm getting to be one of the elders. (laughs) It's fun to watch that. I'd like to share with you this little story of something that happened earlier this year at the retreat center. It's got to do with sort of being with the breakdown of the body as we age. So back in my day when I was on staff, it was a lot of 20-somethings on staff, or maybe, you know, 30-somethings. And now there's a wider range. And earlier this year, one of the cooks uh, who was on for a breakfast shift, which is pretty early, prepping for breakfast, had quite a severe attack of gout in his foot, which he periodically experiences. And apparently what happened was, I don't know if it was coming on gradually and then it just really got quite acute, or if it just suddenly came on, I don't know. But he was in the kitchen uh, prepping for breakfast And it got so bad. It can be, apparently, I haven't had it, but it can be very, very sharp, intense pain. So he was kind of frozen in place in the kitchen, unable to move because the pain was so intense. And another staff person happened to come through the kitchen, which is uh, very fortunate that she did. And he told her, you know, I I need some help here. I'm having this gout attack. And so she bundled him up in the car and took him off to the ER. And then from the hospital, while they waited, she phoned in to her manager to say, you know, listen, this is where I am. I'm at the hospital with this cook. And can you also let, you know, the kitchen manager know that this is what's happened? uh, Because someone needs to help out with breakfast. So her manager, who happens to be German and have a bit of an accent, um, phoned the kitchen manager. And you know how this goes. Maybe you know the game of telephone and how things can change along the way. So 
when she called the kitchen manager to let him know what had happened, what the kitchen manager heard was that the cook had to go to the ER because he was frozen in place from doubt. <laughs> and the, the kitchen manager thought, well, I've had some paralyzing doubt. <laughs> and I thought, only at IMS. <laughs> Would we just take it in stride that someone might have to go to the ER because <laughs> they were frozen in place with doubt? One of the things um, that we do next door at the retreat center with the staff is um, meet in these groups that we call Kalyana Mita groups or spiritual friend groups to discuss certain uh, Dharma themes. And we take a new theme each month and, and meet. So sometime back, the theme was nature. And at that first meeting uh, that I was at with some staff people, we were kind of trying to find our way into that topic. Sometimes it can take a little while to sort of find your way into a new theme and sort of feel out you know, where to go with it and what's relevant in terms of practice. So I remember at our first meeting, as we were just starting, someone said, well, you know, I don't know if I can talk about this. I just have to say that I'm really uh, dealing with something with my dad. And her family, who live quite far away, had been, and her dad, had been noticing that he, his memory was really starting to slip. And they were wondering, was it dementia? Was it early stages of Alzheimer's? So this was really on this one person's mind. And she said, you know, I don't know if this is related to the topic. But she shared with us, you know, the struggle of that, and how she was holding that. And it was interesting, because as soon as she said it, we all dropped in, in a way, to the, to the theme and to the group and felt really connected, no doubt in part because she shared something that was current and relevant and meaningful for her, but also because it seemed so um, pertinent to the topic, so completely uh, a part of the topic of nature. She was sharing with us the process, really, of coming to grips with change in someone who's very important to her, her dad. The process of opening to that, of sensing into the possibility 
of letting go. Letting go of trying to hold on to him the way that he was, the way that she holds him in her mind. Such a powerful practice. Change is natural law. It's what we see in nature, that nothing is fixed. Today, in my reading, I learned that in Thailand, the word for nature is dhamma, or dhamma chat, which means the natural way of things, the law of nature. And we're not separate from that. We're a part of that. Our bodies operate on natural laws. So rather than holding it as some kind of failure or shortcoming to age, to change, to die, there's perfection in that unfolding. Nature has always been a strong refuge for me, something that I've always felt a deep connection to and a place where I felt comfortable and nourished, where I knew that I could go when I was struggling growing up. And at times in my practice over the years, I've consciously used that connection with nature, that appreciation, that nourishment as a balancing quality. That when we're working hard in practice, the beauty of nature and our ease with it, our peace with it, can be very supportive, very nourishing, can be skillful. But it's also been interesting for me to see over the years that it's easy to focus only on the beautiful qualities in nature and then to romanticize about it. This first became really strongly evident to me some years ago when I was on a self-retreat. And it was in a small cabin in a natural setting, so I did most of my practice outside in a big, high, open field. And it was in the fall. It was very beautiful. And there were geese often migrating overhead. And some days as I was walking, I created a walking path in this field, and then I would just sit at a certain point at the end of the path when it was time to sit. At some point when I was walking in that field, I noticed there were deer on the edge of the field just watching me walk. And it felt so lovely and beautiful. There were lots of 
animals around in that spot. So as I looked more closely at all of the animals that I was sharing this land with for that period of time, I could see the ways in which I focused on the beauty and didn't see the rest, the reality, the rest of the reality. What I saw in large part was that uh, a very significant part of the animals that I observed, very significant part of their experience seemed to be fear and hunger. It was interesting. They were still beautiful. But noticing that, in a way, made it seem more real, less uh, romanticized. And I think even though that's true, at least to some degree in wild animals, there's a certain way in which they, that there's a certain way that creatures other than humans are in harmony with what's happening. They just live it. Hunger, fear, ease, comfort. And it's not always lovely. It's often hard, sometimes even violent. They don't seem to have a mind that identifies with experience, that holds on to certain aspects of experience or resists others. I know for myself there's a way that I can trust impermanence or change in nature, as though somehow I was separate from it. <laughs> but in the nature that I see around me, of course it's changing all the time. And it's a little more challenging to find that kind of trust when we're looking at the nature of our own bodies, for example. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen teacher, has a lot of beautiful ways of talking about change. This is a passage that uh, is from one of his books or writings, and it's actually, the, the title is No Death, No Fear. Ask a cloud, he says, what is your date of birth? Before you were born, where were you? If you listen deeply, you may hear the cloud reply. You can imagine the cloud being born. Before it was born, it was the water on the ocean surface, or it was in the river, and then it became vapor. It was also the sun, because the sun makes the vapor. The wind is there, too, helping the water to become a cloud. The cloud doesn't come from nothing. 
there has been only a change in form. It's not a birth of something out of nothing. Sooner or later, the cloud changes into rain or snow or ice. If you look deeply into the rain, you can see the cloud. The cloud isn't lost. It's transformed into rain, and the rain into grass, and the grass into cows, and then into milk, and then into ice cream that you eat. Today, if you eat ice cream, give yourself time to look at the ice cream and say, hello, cloud, I recognize you. By doing that, you have insight and understanding into the real nature of the ice cream and the cloud. You can also see the ocean, the river, the heat, the sun, the grass, and the cow in the ice cream. Looking deeply, you do not see a real date of birth, and you do not see a real date of death for the cloud. All that happens is that the cloud transforms into rain or snow. There's no real death because there's always a continuation, a cloud continuing into ocean, river, the heat of the sun, and the rain continues the cloud. Before it was born, the cloud was already there. So today, when you drink a glass of milk or a cup of tea or eat ice cream, please follow your breathing. Look into the tea or ice cream and say hello to the cloud. definitely easier with cloud than with body, <laughs> this body we call self. So what about death as a contemplation or a reflection? and how that supports practice. I don't know about you, but I often feel that my meditation practice is a certain form of preparation for dying. So if we think about our practice, really, it's not about achieving, attaining, accumulating, or becoming. Becoming somebody better, a better meditator, more accomplished yogi. Really, it's about letting go. And letting go, and letting go. It's about allowing change, aligning ourselves with change. Change in our bodies, change in our minds and hearts. That even over the course of a day, even over the course of one period of sitting or walking, 
there can be quite a lot of change. There's some focus, some clarity, and then something else arises. Some resistance, some worry, some stories about self. It's change. This is a huge part of what our practice is about, that allowing change, that opening to the truth of change, that what arises passes. Sometimes as we practice it can feel like the process, the practice itself, is a form of little deaths, in a way. I remember on the first 10-day retreat that I did, it felt like that. It was really hard, for one thing. (laughs) I can't quite remember why. But I remember a lot of tears and dukkha. And it just felt like parts of me were dying. Maybe maybe it was just uh, energetic holding in the body that was releasing and letting go. That can be a form of dying. Sometimes we get the sense in practice that we're letting go of the very structures that make up the sense of self, the beliefs that we have about ourselves, the beliefs that we have about our practice. Maybe letting go of wanting, watching a desire arise, seeing it clearly, feeling the ache of it, seeing it pass, letting go of not wanting, recognizing the contraction of resistance, being with that, as best as we're able, patiently, kindly, noticing when it changes. Letting go of confusion. Maybe that's taking the shape of letting go of those beliefs that we have about ourselves and our practice, and just beginning again, just reconnecting in the present moment. Ajahn Sumedho from the Thai forest tradition has a really beautiful way of talking about this. He says, perhaps death is the awakening from the dream of life, 
Have you ever thought of it like that? Life lived with a self-view can be a living death, a continuous kind of misery and fear that swarms within our minds. Depression is death. Despair is death. Fear, desire, and ignorance are death. So we can live a living death. Or we can die to death before we die by awakening from the dream of life and from the illusions of a self. Of course, a reflection about death, just being reminded about death, can also provide that sense of spiritual urgency in practice. In many traditions, awareness of death is used as a powerful reminder to be more awake in this life and not to sleepwalk our way toward death, but to be awake, to wake up from that dream. Someone who was on the board of directors next door at the retreat center years ago told me this story about attending his grandmother's 90-something birthday. And the whole family was there, and it was a really lovely, sweet event. And she was, you know, seated in some prominent place, and people would hang out with her, you know, one-on-one during the event. So he spent a little time with her, and he said, Grandma, what's the, you know, what do you have to tell me? You've lived this long life. What have you learned about life? And she pulled him up really close, his face next to her face, and she said, Look at my eyes. And then she blinked. And that was her message. (laughs) It's a blink. (laughs) Her 90-something years. It felt like a blink. So spiritual urgency isn't about panic. Like, we only have a blink, oh my God, I better get to it. You know, that's a distortion. A friend once told me she, stopped, she wanted to stop living her life as though it was an emergency. <laughs> so we don't want our practice to be uh, practiced as though it were an emergency <laughs> either. But the remembering of death the reminder that it's a blink can help, again, just to provide that really deep perspective, that deep cutting through to what's important for us, for each of us. And really, we don't know when our blink is done. We never know. So why wait? 
why not go for what's important now? Why not let go now? Why not love and open to love now? Why not wake up now? I'd like to close with a passage from Dogen. Just understand that birth and death itself is nirvana, and you will neither hate one as being birth and death, nor cherish the other as being nirvana. Only then can you be free of birth and death. This present birth and death is the life of Buddha. If you reject it with distaste, you are thereby losing the life of Buddha. If you abide in it, attaching to birth and death, you also lose the life of Buddha. But do not try to gauge it with your mind or speak it with words. When you simply release and forget both your body and your mind and throw yourself into the house of Buddha, then with no strength needed and no thought expended, freed from birth and death, you become Buddha. Then there can be no obstacle in any person's mind. There is an extremely easy way to become Buddha. Refraining from all evil, not clinging to birth and death, working in deep compassion for all sentient beings, respecting those over you and having compassion for those below you without any detesting or desiring, worrying or lamentation. This is what is called Buddha. Do not search beyond it. Let's sit for couple minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.